We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash hack it out. Just go to Indeed.com slash hack it out right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash hack it out. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Hack It Out Golf Podcast with myself, uh, Mark Crossfield, and Lou Stagner. Tonight, we've got a very interesting guest called Dr. Robert Gray. Um, he's written a book, How We Learn to Move. So I thought this would be very relevant to golfers, obviously constantly having to move, try and propel that ball forwards. I know Lou has read this book a couple of times and has been DMing me on Twitter daily about the ideas in it. So I'm really keen to learn about these concepts with an expert in the field. Should be a fun one. So, Dr. Robert Gray, yes, welcome. Uh, is that right, Dr. Robert Gray? Is that? Oh, uh, Rob's. Uh, Rob's you? fine. Yep. Yes, uh, yeah. Rob. Yeah. Way, yep. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Rob. So, yes. for the listeners, I've only found out about you through your book, but give us a bit of your history. So, yeah, so I'm I'm from Canada, Toronto, originally. Uh, I grew up ice hockey, so I don't I played a bit of golf, but it's not my main thing. Um, and um, so I, now I'm a I'm a professor at Arizona State University. Um, I've been interested in kind of performance and how people improve uh, skills for a long time. I've kind of uh, with sports, but also I've kind of worked uh, a lot on driving safety and designing of vehicles and also I worked for a long time with the U.S. Air Force, working with pilots and things, how to evaluate performance, how to train people. And, you know, more recently, I've become kind of interested, focused more of on sports, you know, how we best acquire sports skills, how you improve your performance. And, you know, I've, so I mean, mentioned the book. I'm also, you know, I've, I have a podcast as well, Perception Action Podcast, where I've Fantastic. been thinking about these ideas for quite a while, uh, too. Okay, so quite an extensive history in um, or career there in kind of learning, I guess, to, like trying mm -hmm. to work out what makes people and how they learn. Some of it, or well, lots of it, related to movement as well. By the sound sure. of that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, have you what what sports have you worked directly with? Have you, have you worked with sports directly? So you know, yeah, like quite a bit. So now I, my main sport I work in is baseball. In in Arizona, okay. we have the you know the Cactus League. So I work with a, with a few of the teams out here. But I've also worked in soccer and and uh, golf occasionally, um, a little basketball. So a, a few different ones. And golf, golf. I you know, I use, one of the things I used to work on was. So I'm also not only interested in kind of how people get good at something. I always say I'm interested in why things go bad. <laughs> so I worked yeah, a yeah. bit on, on performance pressure in golf and, and things like that uh, a few years ago. So yeah, I dabble, but baseball is, is my main sport that I work in. 
That's interesting. Okay, interesting. The other, one thing I want to point out too, um, we we're on maybe episode 55 of our podcast, roughly we're about a year into it. Um, and we've had what, maybe 10 guests now, maybe eight to 10 guests. And two, like yeah. yeah. Two out of our 10 guests are PhDs from Canada. So we have <laughs> yeah, Dr. Yeah. Sasha McKenzie, who is a What's going on over there? biomechanist. Because <laughs> uh, it's, it's always cold, isn't it? They, they are, are producing some smart, smart people up in Canada. So yay, Canada. Oh, thank you. Yeah, but it's our secret plan to, to infiltrate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With, your, with your smart mind. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah. tell, us, tell us about the book, How We Learn to Move. What, what is it? Is it a collection of your studies? Is it a collection of other people's studies? Is it just anecdotal? ideas that you've built up over the years tell us a bit about the book yeah so so it's it's a bit of mix of, of all those things so it has some of my research a lot of other people's research a lot of kind of um a few anecdotes here here and there um so what it where it came about is you know so it's how we learn to move and the second part of the title a revolution in the way we coach and practice sports skills yeah and yeah Sorry, so yeah. what i wanted to do is uh, there's a lot of this material already out there but i wanted to give kind of a general introductory book for people to think the different way we think about training and learning skills and particularly folk changing the way we think about a couple things in particular one is i call it the anti-repetition revolution the okay. the idea that the way that we get skillful is by trying to learn the one correct way to do it by practicing it over and over so there's a large body of research and ideas that are kind of changing that view and people okay. coaching in different ways and they also the idea that we can be, you know, becoming skillful is about becoming automatic kind of, you know, where you separate yourself from the world around you. So, you know, the term we use a lot of times practice drills, right? The yeah. drills comes from a military. We drill Absolutely, it into yeah. you. So you under pressure, it'll just come out without you thinking like a habit. So there's a lot been a large movement. It really has been around for a long time, but it's really starting to gain momentum of changing these ideas and, and thinking about skill and practice in a different way. So I wanted to give people kind of get them thinking about and tell them about some of the research, some of the key figures, some of the ideas, you know, in this kind of revolution I was calling it. Yeah, yeah I, I thought so, the book, what, um, it, it was great that it was put at a layperson's level. Um, so I, I loved how you attacked it. Um, I've read a couple of other items on this topic and, and and they were complex to read. They were challenging for somebody like me that doesn't work in your field to understand some of the concepts and some of the things. So I loved how it was uh, uh, very applicable to somebody like me that doesn't have a background um, in this work like you do. And uh, some of the concepts in here are fantastic and, uh, and I'd love to get into, and I know we will, some of the studies that you've been a part of, studies you've referenced and how it's changing, you know, how we understand how we can best learn to move and acquire a skill. Look like you're about to say something, Mark, and I think I cut you off. No, you're right. That's good. I was actually going to say, Lou, I know you've got lots of questions, so why don't you fire away with one of yours? As someone who's read the book a few times, I know this is... Uh... So you're loaded with questions. What, what's your first one? Yeah, so, I went through and I, I have, uh, I don't know, probably 15 questions I wrote down uh, and sent over to Mark. <laughs> um, and we, I, we won't get through all of them. I'm sure we'll meander a bit as we go here. So let's kind of start at, at the beginning. And is there, is, is there one correct repeatable technique? Like it, what, like, let's talk about that concept. Yeah, so I, that certainly seems to be the way, you know, that we teach, you know, skills. I, I, you know, I 
when I went to learn golf, you know, you walk up an instructor, you put your feet this far apart, you put your head down. This is how you interlock your fingers, right? The the coach knows the answer and you come there to get them. And even while I was writing this book, my wife was taking a pottery class and it was the same thing. You go and they tell you the right way to do it and you keep practicing until you get it. And really, once we've been digging it, really... And then the, one of the people I try to highlight in the, in the book is this researcher from Russia named Nikolai Bernstein, who really, he was the first one to kind of bring this to light, but his, it was all in Russian. So it took a while to, for us to, to notice. Um, he studied actually blacksmiths and he looked at uh, how really skilled blacksmiths were able to chisel and sheet metal really consistently. And what he found was that they actually don't do the same movement every time. So there's a kind of a growing body of research starting with that and then some stuff I've done in, in other sports that the end, the, and the, what he, the term he quoted was repetition without repetition, right? The way that you, you repeat the outcome, squaring up the golf ball perfectly on a drive, but not by moving this exact same way every time, right? There's, so there's not only differences in technique that is going to be from golfer to golfer to golfer, which I think people are aware. <laughs> I always like, yep, if sure. people aren't like, just look at Jack Nicholas versus Arnold Palmer and yeah. tell me there's not different ways to be good. But there's yeah. also within the same golfer, you, you vary, each swing is slightly different. And those little differences are important. Um, and the idea of tra- training is we used to be to get rid of those differences, make you try to do the same thing as much as possible every time. Whereas now we realize, wow, there's a lot happening in those, how you vary from swing to swing is really what a large part of being skillful is. So, yeah, so I really tried to bring out the evidence that there's, you know, it's not really supported the idea that there's the key to being skillful is repeatability of one technique. Yeah, I thought that so, part was but, really interesting in the how you led off with the study you mentioned from Bernstein with the blacksmith and swinging the hammer and, and how from swing to swing we vary, whether that's a blacksmith swinging a hammer or an expert golfer swinging a club. And I'm going to put it in the way I understood it. And you can help me out if, I, if I'm not explaining it correctly or I misunderstood it. But we, uh, as a golfer, a skilled golfer or even a moderately skilled golfer is going to vary from swing to swing. It's going to have small variations from swing to swing. And basically, we are kind of self-adjusting. Um, we, we have the objective that we're trying to uh, achieve, and that would be hit a golf ball to our target. Um, and our swing is going to be slightly different every time we do it. Um, and we are, as we go, our body is sort of uh, reacting, and that might not be the right word, but is reacting to each of those differences during the course of your swing or as you're swinging. And it's making small compensations to achieve the objective. Is that is that kind of? Am I getting that at a, at a layperson level? Is that yeah, sort of for correct? sure. Yeah, yeah. What what we see, and you know, I've I have some baseball research, and we see this in golf. Uh, there's some golf work too, showing that. Yeah, part of what seems to be really skillful is, you know, you start your swing and your shoulder angles a bit more, your shoulders a bit more open. And, and what a really skilled golfer seems to be able to do is on the fly kind of unconsciously detect that and, and compensate it for by using a different elbow movement, right? So the joints and the body parts are working together to, to, to um, achieve the outcome, by, but they're being slightly different depending on every execution. And the idea is that that happens because 
the the word we use is constraints. The the, the situation you're in is slightly different every time you you get fatigued. Um, you know, there's wind, there's environmental conditions. Yeah. And so you need to be able to, and the really thing we're trying to focus is you need to adapt, right? You don't need to adjust and adapt to these slight variations. And yeah, you're exactly right. That seems to be this kind of, um, sometimes we call it a synergy. Your body parts are working together to get you to your goal. Um, that, that really seems to be a hallmark of, of, of a skillful movement. So then in effect, you're kind of hinting, and I've written down anti-repeat over and over. You're kind of hinting. So just so the listeners are clear, obviously, we kind of want the outcome to be repeatable. Mm -hmm. Let's not forget that. So when I'm listening, it's very easy to not concentrate on everything being said, because this is quite out there for people, because obviously golfers are used to going to a range and hitting 100 balls trying to perfect certain movements you know the same way over and over again and and arguably that there's still elements that that applies because even though they're trying to apply those movements again and again and again they aren't actually doing it they still mm -hmm. have that variable so in effect as well if they're good at learning they're learning how to manage those variables in what they think is an exact movement does that kind of make sense what i'm saying there when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, the key point there is, you, yeah, you want the same outcome. We want to hit the ball yeah. in the in at, get to the pin. But the yeah. key point and but the traditional idea is that the way that we get there is the same movement. Right. Yeah. Which is what Bernstein really shot down is no to, to achieve the same outcome, the hammer hitting the chisel. You actually have to do something slightly different every time. And yeah, so, I, you know, you need to be able to adjust to different lies, downhill lies, uphill lie, different wind, you know, playing different shots. So, uh, you know, rough. And so, yeah, that, that's a, a large part of it, what it's about. Um, so yeah. it's not doing the same thing every time. It's doing slightly different in things to adjust to the conditions or the constraints. So okay, would you, but let's would... let's con sorry, Lou, let's just control the conditions. Mm -hmm. So let's put a student on a flat bit of ground in a very common situation in a golf environment, which would be an indoor studio. So no wind or rain. They're hitting in front of a measuring machine that's just going to measure how that ball goes with no conditions. It's it's as dry as you can make the data. Mm -hmm. um, they haven't got the variables you're mentioning there. They're still going to produce variables to try and get the same outcome is what you're suggesting. But surely they should be, there's a part of that practice where they, might benefit from practicing the same thing over and over and over again in a controlled environment, or are we saying that isn't the case? No. Does that so, make sense? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, I, you're right. So if I keep everything the same, then yeah, yeah, the variability you need in your movement is going to be really small, right? Yeah. Because you you really you probably they're going to be slight variations, but they're going to be very small. Um, you know, this, I always say this across sports. Like if you think about the way that a, a football running back has to run and a sprinter has to run, 
Like a sprinter is very controlled conditions. They know what's going to happen. <laughs> Running back has yeah. to avoid tacklers. So the amount of variability and adaptability required is very different. Um, burn, we would always argue there's some that are going to be. But the, so, yes, when, when you're doing that controlled condition in the lab, on, off a t, the, then, yes, you wouldn't need much. The, the, the point, I guess, is they, Bernstein and all, all of us would make is that that doesn't transfer well to a real yeah, of course, because yes. you don't actually play that way. Um, yeah. The idea, the, the kind of flawed idea that a lot of us are trying to, is that you have to learn this fundamental first. And then, like this goes through, through a lot of other sports. One we like to pick on a lot is soccer. Like you have to learn how to dribble around cones before you can play a game of soccer. Like, so we have this idea, you have to learn this one technique and then you plug it into the game um, yeah. rather than letting your, kind of your ability, your movement evolve by actually starting with the game itself um, is, is kind of the, yeah. So, so interesting. We, yeah. yeah. So, a cha- so a lot of people would challenge the value of hitting this, like a hundred chip shots off a, a, a yes. AstroTurf on the screen when the same shot really is not going to accomplish very much, you know, in this new idea. I know a lot of people disagree. <laughs> a lot of coaches disagree, yeah, well, but, but I think there's a, two elements yeah. to that, mm-hmm. but I can see why that point yeah. definitely exists. I remember distinctly when I was teaching full time at a range <clears throat> and at the same time I was playing and learning tennis. I kind of always played a bit as a kid, but never really played. And I remember saying to my students, because golf's one of those games that you can have lessons and get bored quite quick if you're a beginner, mm-hmm. because you don't actually play golf. So yeah. I go and have a tennis lesson or my five-year-old daughter, is, when she was younger, goes and have a tennis lesson. She stands on a tennis court. She hits the ball over the net. The coach hits it back. It doesn't come back to the same spot as much as they try to put it in the same spot. So she has to move and get her feet right and adjust. She's, she's actually playing a version of tennis. Golfers, when they learn, I say this to students so often, um, you're not actually playing golf here. Like what we're Mm -hmm. doing here, which is where we had a policy when I was teaching full time, we had to get them on the golf course within six lessons. It was six lessons they had to get on the golf course. And what we Mm -hmm. found, we did a study, is the people who got on the golf course within six lessons, they often continued, went through the program longer. The people who took longer to get on the golf course because they missed the lesson, work got in the way, they weren't that good, their confidence wasn't good they would just kind of drift away much quicker. The sooner you got the person actually doing the variable, which is the fun, golf, walking, chatting, hitting a <laughs> shot, walking after it, picking the ball up, losing a ball, all those things, then the value you could see for a learner, certainly a new golfer, which I was working heavily with, like you could really see the value in that rather than stood on that dry range of them not really enjoying the sterileness of that's not golf. Like this is golf practice I want. I've come to play golf. Um, it's yeah. interesting that. That's a, yeah, Mark, sorry. that's a really that's really interesting, and and that was certainly one of the motivations in the of my writing this book too. Is then I have a chapter on youth sports coaching that I think mm. this focus on repetition and breaking skills down into pieces really is killing. <laughs> it's boring, and it 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 if kids can't master this fundamental, then they think, oh, I'm uncoordinated and they give up totally on any kind of movement related to me. And then, you know, yeah. it could lead to health behaviors, problems later on. So yeah, that's one of the motivations to, uh, definitely was to kind of change the way we, we teach kids and get people started and get them having fun and we'll get them doing what they came there for. Right. Yeah. Um, to uh, play, play golf, not make swings. Right. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Rob, can you? Uh, one of the topics you t- you touch on in the book, and you go through it pretty extensively, is uh, the, the the 
idea of self-organization. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of uh, talk us through that. Explain to the listeners uh, what it is, what it means, and, and maybe how it relates to golf and how they might uh, let, use that to help get better at playing golf. Yeah, I think the, uh, you know, it's a really important idea. The, the idea is, you know, the way that the, we, it's kind of a different version of, of how things get controlled. And the way that we tend to think of how things get organized is, you know, in life is by the top down. Like there's a boss that tells what everything below what to do. And that's kind of the way that a lot of people think skill works. You know, your, your brain is telling your elbow what, how much to bend and, and so on. That's kind of top down control. Self-organization is the idea that if you just let them, the elements kind of organize themselves. And the common example we use is a flock of birds. Like a flock of birds moves around and swoops and swerves. There's no leader in a flock of birds. They're all just reacting locally. So the, the bird sees a neighbor get close to them. So they move, the neighbor, next neighbor moves and the next move. Um, so it's the idea that your body, you know, can organize itself, the joints and angles by itself without you telling it what to do. And the main implications for coaching, and I've really experienced it myself, is trying to give like explicit instructions, like I'll bend your knee this amount or keep your elbow in, are to me are much less effective than creating a practice condition and letting your body figure it out on your own. And I can, a specific example I really like from baseball is I use. So I work with some, some baseball pitchers that they have this can the, the way they throw the ball their arm separates from their body really early um, yeah. and it could cause an elbow injury in the long term so the traditional way is you try to give them instructions on how to correct that okay keep your elbow against your body bend it this much um so you're trying to do top down bo- you're trying to boss your body around right the preferred way that we like to use is use now is i take what a, a kid's rubber ball, basically, I call it connection ball. And I tell them, hold that under your, uh, against your body. And when you throw, I want the ball to go towards the, pit, the plate, right? And so what I've done is added, we call it a constraint so that if their arm comes out early, they can never, the ball will never go forward. It will fall out and go backwards. So what, what I'm doing is trying to get, making it so they can't do what they used to do before but I'm letting their bodies figure it out on their own, how to change it, let it self-organize instead of telling here, do your elbow, do this, do this with your hip. Right. So the bot, so self-organization really the, the main message is that really, and, and Franz Bosch is someone who I mentioned in the book. He, 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 the way he expresses it is your body has very little interest in what the coach or you have to say, right. It's going to organize <laughs> itself. Like part of it is things are happening too fast. Like the example we started with Lou, where you're adjusting online, like your elbow is compensating for your shoulder. Those have to happen way too fast for your, you to think about them consciously. And, and it has to happen you know, at the level of your spinal cord and your muscles and things it can't, your higher brain areas can't really get involved. It, it's too fast, right? So you kind of got to get out of their way and let them do it on their own is kind of the, the main message from that. So it's, setting up better learning environments sounds like it's going to be key to then persuade different movements. So I put my expensive car in front of them and tell them they're not allowed to hit it. They've got to start ball right of it and hope they work it out. Obviously that's a joke, but that kind <laughs> no, of idea no, yeah. because... 
because I, I used to say that with students. Imagine someone you love is stood in front of you. They keep starting it left and it cuts off to the right. And I want it to start out to the right. And I say, just, you know, I can put a box there. Imagine your kids are there. I don't care what your best, your favorite car's there. And I don't care what you do. I just want that ball starting right of that and see how they figure it out. It was always a really interesting idea. It, it's hinting towards that a bit more, is it not? For sure. And one of the main messages in the book I like to is, this is not my original, is the changing idea from a coach as an instructor. Here's the solution. I got it. Come and get it to a designer and a guide. Like, yeah. I don't know the way that you're going to stop slicing. <laughs> um, yeah. But what I'm going to do is create practice conditions that let your body and you you figure it out. Like you said, giving you a motivation of not hitting your car. Yeah. And, you know, I see go golf instructors. Here's a T you know, swing, just your swing pass. So you don't hit this T you're not telling the person you do that by doing this with your elbow, this with your hip, you're just creating a, a new practice condition that kind of motivates that motivates them to figure this out. Right. So I think it's um, exciting. I think it's, you know, you talked about kind of your audience. It's exciting because you can do a lot of these on your own too. And you're practicing around if you, you know, figure out these kind of design your own practice <laughs> to, to get yeah. yourself, you still, it's still, definitely still important to have a coach. Um, but I think it's changing the role of the coach for sure. I think that's a great segue. As I read through the book, um, I continue to come back to how can I use this in practice? How can I design better practice for myself? Most golfers are, are not getting um, a practice plan designed from a coach. They're on their own for the most part. Uh, they go to a driving range and they get a bucket of balls and they they hit the same club, the same shot 30, 40 times in a row. Then they go on to maybe the next club. Um, and that's very typical of what, mm -hmm. what golfers are doing. Um, if you were to give some advice around creating, you know, practice design as it relates to golf, um, like what are some of the things that you would, you would start with, you know, we can use me as the example. And then my follow-up to just lead you to follow up on that you know, we're, we're about ready to, I know you're in Arizona and it's nice there mm -hmm. all year. I'm mm -hmm. in the Northeast, Mark's <laughs> in the UK. We're about ready to go into winter time. And a lot of us will be you know, hitting golf balls off of a mat into a net, you know, inside of our garage. So how do you approach practice plans? Like what's your general guidance? And then how do you carry that over to somebody who's going to be practicing indoors for the next four or five months? Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think so. I mentioned at the start, like I'm, a, I'm kind of a consultant with teams and organizations and professional athletes. And one of the big things I find myself doing with those is I just walking around and asking why. <laughs> what is the purpose of this practice activity? What are you trying to accomplish? And like I think in your example shows it amazing, like a lot of what we do, we don't have an answer for that. We're just hitting a lot of balls because that seems like how you practice. You do a lot of, we don't have anything specific we're working on. And some of the best athletes that I've been lucky to work with, that's what I see separates them. It's not like the baseball players, 
there's the lesser skilled ones just go up and take a bunch of swings. The really good ones come up and say, okay, I'm going to practice not swinging at outside pitches or, or they, they carry it something. So that would for me be kind of the first step for me. If you're hitting the same shot every, all over, over and over, and it's going perfectly down the middle, that's not learning. <laughs> that's performing, yeah. right? We don't yeah. learn when we're doing the same thing every time and doing it really well. That's not learning. Learning is making mistakes, being messy. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. that's when we learn. So you have to kind of challenge yourself. So I would, you know, the big thing I would say is, you know, kind of come up with what you want to improve. And, you know, then, you know, there's some, there's actually one of the, the, um, the big methodology as I, I, I talk about in the book is the constraints led approach, which is that ball example. There's actually a constraints led approach in golf book <laughs> that I would highly recommend people check out. Um, but um, so come up with some things you want to work out. How can I, what can I do change the design of the practice? Right. So, you know, mark your example, maybe I will practice where there's something always on my left that I have to hit around it for this session. Then yeah. the next session, I'm going to do that. So instead of just hitting the same shot over and over again, we're not, you really have to be deliberate and, and kind of purposeful about practice design. If you just let it go, we're terrible. We just pract like to practice things we're good at because it already feels yeah, yeah. good. It's very rewarding, yeah. but that's not when you get better. Right. Um, so that's my big. And so I think practicing at home golf's, you know, I think one of the better sports, cause it's not a team sport where you really need an opponent or anything. So, but I think creating, you know, the other big thing, you know, I emphasize in the, the book is variability, the variability, adding variability to your practice conditions, right? Anything you can add, you know, play around with different clubs, different club lengths, T, T heights, different stance positions. Um, we have kind of, I know golf, <laughs> you have a tendency, this is the one way that I do it. I don't want to mess with it. But well, messing you say, with it, yeah. So sorry, you Mike. say that good players don't do that. So what good players do is they establish a performance level, and they get bored of doing exactly what you've highlighted, which is going to a range and hitting lots of good shots. Some don't, you know. Some are renowned long practices, just beat ball after ball after ball. But you won't find any good golfer who doesn't go out in an evening and try and hit a three iron like a lob wedge or mm -hmm. they try and hit a 50 yard slice with their driver to 150 like we do i've got a youtube channel where we make golf content and we do this challenge where we have a driver 100 it's 150 yards so i would hit my driver 270 yards through the air so it's a really short distance for a driver to be hit but you're not allowed to hit it soft you've got to hit it as hard as possible and it was me and another pro and then a seven handicapper who did it and the seven handicapper, until he watched us do it, didn't really have a clue of how to do that. I had mm -hmm. a clue how to do that because I used to practice that as a kid because you get bored of it in decent shots. And you think, well, what happens if I try and bend this 60 yards? So I would say what you'll find with better players over time is that they do definitely like to muck around a mm -hmm. lot, which yeah. I always think is quite interesting where the, the, the average golfers, and obviously that's a gross stereotype because there'll be average golfers who do that as well, but let's just call like the average golfer, they're definitely searching for correct. They want it to mm -hmm. be correct. So, so they're, they're searching for something that the good golfer isn't searching for. The good golfer knows the variability often in the sport and is actually 
not only practicing that, but practicing at extreme levels. And then what happens is you'll see in a tournament, Lou, you've seen it, that they hit like a 50-yard slice with a free iron <laughs> from like 120 or something. Because sure. yeah. they've actually got data in their mind of how to reproduce that shot because they've done it. Yeah. Uh, again, I refer back to my daughter. When we used to play, she doesn't play as much anymore. But if she gets behind a tree, like my parents would always be like, oh, bring it out, bring it out. And I was like, no, no. I want you to hit one under that tree. Like, what would you do? How do you get it under that tree? Well, it's seven iron. Well, that might hit the tree, Martin. What other club might you hit? Well, I've got a five iron. Yeah, try that. Oh, look, now you've learned a skill because we didn't control it. We kept the variability in there. And I would say that's something your average golfer and whoever's listening can define what that term means for themselves. Definitely are on the quest for correct often and i see this in my content because i've written here this is a super hard thing to break down because i watch my content and the content that works better for students not better as in better for them but better for clicks and interactions and the whole youtube and horrible algorithms that are dictating what's good or bad nowadays um is they want like answers they Mm -hmm. don't want they don't like it when I say, try these free variations <laughs> and see which one works best for you. They don't want that. They want mm-hmm. me to say, this is what you should do. And I always think that's super, super interesting as a learner myself. If someone said to me, I played a guitar, if someone said to me, try playing this chord three ways and see which one fits into your song, that's mm-hmm. empowering than someone mm-hmm. saying, you play A like this. No, oh, but that open a doesn't fit with that barcode d like <laughs> it needs to be a bar day like mm-hmm. so i i think it's interesting you do see that with different learners lou what would you say as a learner are you have you oh. been stuck in trying to be perfect or have you mm-hmm. you're not afraid to muck around and try the extremes well i try to i try to mess around and, and i you know listen uh, um, i will volunteer to hit golf balls around your car so please bring your car over and i'll i will swing away but so we've had a uh, rob we've had a guy here on here in the past his name's adam young he's an instructor and uh, he wrote a book called The Practice Manual, and that's dedicated to a lot of it in there is around variable differential practice. And, and so some of the things that he advocates are you know, picking a club, doesn't matter what the club is, and intentionally trying to strike the uh, strike the ball on the very on the toe of the club, in the middle of the club, in the heel of the club, you know, intentionally trying to maybe hit it a little bit thin, maybe a little bit fat, move the ball way up in your stance, move it way back in your stance, shape it different ways. So hit one left to right, hit one right to left, hit it high, hit it low, trying lots and lots of different things. Are those the kind of things like in your research that that you find helps to transfer skills more than just doing the same thing over and over again? For sure, for sure. Um, I, that I think the lowest hanging fruit in a lot of sports is very the variability, adding you know all those kind of things you're talking about. I think in the book I kind of distinguish two ways of doing it. There's one, the constraints that approach is when you're to me is when you're trying to get rid of focus on a particular aspect of your, of your stroke. Like, you know, I want to get my swing path this way, you know, so you're, you're, you're trying to do a certain thing. The other example of what you describe, I, I put, I classify in this, this method called differential learning where you almost, well, another kind of idea in the book is movement being skillful. Movement is mover is problem solving, right? You're learning to solve a movement problem, by you have all this environment, these constraints and conditions, and you're learning how to control your body 
and come out with it. And, and that, those examples, Lou, are great. You're learning the problem space. Like you're learning, yeah. like one of the things that I, I use golf as an example of the way we traditionally teach skills is I, we teach you, a, I call it adjustability, right? Here's how you swing a golf club, a million shots on flat ground. Now here's how you adjust that one swing for a downhill lie. Right? You put your ball, you do this kind of stance, this thing versus adaptability where like what both of you are talking about is let's learn the relationship between the position and club and all this. So I can just do any, any lie, anytime, right? Mm-hmm. I don't have to learn this one adjustment. I learn it. I would call it adaptability, right? You can adapt to any of these conditions. So when I'm going yeah. through and doing a drill, let's say that I am intentionally trying to strike the ball on the toe of the club and then in the center of the club and then on the heel of the club. And I'm repeating uh, that drill. Maybe I, I'm going to hit 12 shots. I go through that four times. Um, when you're doing something like that, should you, uh, should you keep score? Should you turn it into a game? Like, th- does that help? Um, or it doesn't really matter. Just the, the fact that you are going through and you're doing something different each time is all that matters. Or somebody like me, like I gravitate towards, I want to track my progress and see how good I am at uh, being able to hit different parts of the club face on command. And if I'm getting better at doing that, or should I stop caring about that? Did, did that make sense the way I asked No, that? for sure. No, I yeah. think I definitely, I think um, kind of tracking performance and outcomes is fine. I think it's very, like can be very motivating for people to, you know, I think, so I, yeah, I think that's fine. And I think that like the key point we're both making is kind of counterintuitively learning to deliberately hit something on the, the toe of the club is learn is developing you're learning the you're not consciously the relationship about how to produce a movement to get a particular impact which is going to help you hit it square on the club when you want to yeah. right you're learning yeah. this relationship between your movement and the outcome and these different outcomes which you're right mark there's kind of this view that oh if i learn that won't i just shank every shot when i get on the golf club because i'm teaching myself to do a bad shot um, but there's actually, I, I talk about it in the book, there's some golf studies in this area that um, a method that we use sometimes is, is called the method of uh, amplification of error. So if you have a really bad thing in your swing, actually you can get better by making it worse <laughs> because the person can learn, they, they get more sensitive to it and they can figure out how to correct it. Um, so I think that's kind of that what's going on there too. You're learning when you learn how to make the wrong shot, it helps you make the you know the one down the middle. For, yeah. When yeah. I was coaching full time, and I used to say to lots of coaches, I don't and my I'd say to students, I don't want my student to hit the right shot. I would always want them to hit both. So let's say you've got a student who hits a massive cut and they want to draw, you know, so they want to hit the other way. I would get them drawing the ball. That's great. As soon as they found that feel and we've worked in that shots in, I would say we don't want to lose your cut. Like let's hit that cut again. I want you to know both sides of the argument. If you know both sides of the argument, you've probably got more chance of A, controlling it, and B, maybe even finding a little bit of a middle ground. So I would often get students to learn how to embrace the bad shot as well as trying to embrace a slightly different, what they thought, better shot. Because often as well, what they thought was a better shot often came out that it was less reliable. It was a more desirable look and what they thought was right, but when they actually achieved it, you would measure it and think, well, that's actually not going any straighter than their cut. So they're actually better off cutting, but they're going to get a hole where 
they're not allowed to hit it right. Their cut miss is right. I've taught them how to hit a draw, which they can do, but it always tends to miss a bit left, for argument's sake. That can be impl- that can be applied now in the variability of the golf course. That hole where the trouble's up the right, I've given them a different spanner, a different hammer, a different tool that they could hopefully pull on, where they were very much wanting to just come and have again. I would like that. I would get people say that like, I literally had a lesson this week. It was my mum. Love you, mum. But it was infuriating. <laughs> Never teach family people. I'm sure you know, but wowzers. She wanted to work on her pitching, 50 yard pitches. She always misses left. That's what she says. So we measured mm-hmm. and she did. 90% of them missed, missed left. I said to my mum, you know, I don't, I very rarely aim at the hole. Like the amount of times I'll aim at the hole in a round of golf is so rare. So one club I hit fades, so I aim that up the, up the left. And then four other clubs I hit are straight to slightly draw, so I aim them up the right. And then my driver can be fade or draw, depending on how it's moving through the months of play. So I'll aim left or right. It's dynamically moving all the time. She keeps aiming straight and missing left. She misses left every time. Like the clue's <laughs> in the question, isn't it? Like, and yeah. I say to her, look, let's try some, and I want you to aim. She had to aim about four yards right of the flag over 50 yards so that's not a big adjustment if you think about it four yards right over 50 yards like it's a minute face change um and she says to me like they all do the student set but that's not right is it (laughs) (laughs) what hitting them all much closer isn't right like that's what you're constantly trying to break down it's very hard to get people out of thinking for sure right and wrong where Mark, you, you totally missed an opportunity you completely missed an opportunity to use your own example from earlier you should have stood in front of your mom you are <laughs> someone hopefully she loves and she would have hit it straight at my yeah. shins the way i was talking to her i was getting so frustrated <laughs> lou i want to go back to your question about feedback and scoring one of the point i want to make and this is kind of a classic effective motor learning if you're going to give yourself points, like for hitting different places on the club, it, I think that's a good, if you are the one assessing how well you did it. So if you say, oh yeah, I hit it on the club. What you really have to be careful of is if you're using some outside source, like you're using your iPhone app that's filming you or a blast, mo- like you're using. So in, in motor learning, we, we, we distinguish between intrinsic feedback, feedback I get myself from extrinsic feedback that doesn't come to me naturally. Um, and we have so much of it now because of technology that you have to be careful with, with, with in coaching yourself, especially any kind of uh, things that's measuring your, your club head speed or any angle, or um, you really want to use that kind of sparingly and, and carefully um, anything where you can judge it yourself, because you, you, the problem is if you get too much of that external, then you don't, you want to be able to assess yourself and know when you hit it improperly. You don't want to learn to tune that out. <laughs> so that, that's, that's the point I would make about that. Yeah. You know what? So a couple of, I want to go through a couple of things that I've done in the past and I've learned these things from people like, um, Adam Young and another guy named Clay Ballard. Um, I, like I will, um, I'll try to guess I'll intentionally try to hit the ball on the toe or on, uh, on the center of the face or on the heel. Um, and I will use, uh, like a dry erase marker on the ball. So it'll leave a mark where it struck the club. And before I look where it was, I try to guess where it was. And I try to get very specific about where it was. And I think that's some of the things you're kind of mentioning there is mm-hmm. don't just let the technology tell you what happened, but try mm-hmm. to interpret for yourself. 
that's one of the things that I do. Um, and the other thing I do, and I want to get to like sonification here in a minute. The other thing I do, you talked about, you know, having errors and, and um, like my tendency is to strike the ball on the heel too much. And in the past, I used to just stand a little farther away from the ball. Well, before you know it, I mean, the ball's like 15 feet away from me. I can barely reach it. I'm so far away from it. So one of the things that I've done that's helped me to shift where I strike the ball is I actually get really, really close to the ball. So I move mm-hmm. closer to the ball and I'm trying to strike the ball on the toe of the club. So I get extreme, I get uncomfortably close to the golf ball for me. And mm-hmm. then I'm trying to hit it on the toe of the club. And that's helping me to um, move my position around. Are those the kind of things like that you that you advocate for? Or am I in the wrong space with what? No, what for sure. That? Yeah, that's one that we, we use a lot. In, like at a, a baseball example that the group I work with, they serve, sometimes we have baseball pitchers, they land on their foot and they're not quite square. So they roll a little bit, which is a problem. So what we do is we take them and we put them in sand. <laughs> so when they roll, it almost fall over. Like it makes so it makes it uncomfortable. Or sometimes uh, uh, when the coaches I work with, Bart Hill, like when the players have too much bend in their leg, he'll actually pull with a rope <laughs> to like exactly like yeah. So exaggerating error and and kind of in it kind of paradoxically, it, it seems to it's giving your body information about how to change it. Yeah, yeah, so that's, I, that's definitely. Fascinating. Uh, you have to the, talk about your baseball study. So the one I think it it, it was ten years ish, and and talking about the different groups, and um, I'm not going to spoil it too much, but I found it absolutely fascinating. This is the one where you continued to track them after the season where you followed them. Yes. Uh, it was incredible to read about that. So yeah, so I had uh, over a lot of my career, I developed a basically a baseball VR, <laughs> baseball batting virtual environment, and. Um, I did this study. It was a very simple, fairly simple study. I, I took players where I, I had a control group that just did baseball practice, a group that did in baseball. There was a, there's a tendency for low variability practice too, right? You hit off a pitching machine that throws the ball, the same speed, same location every yeah. time. So what I did was I had a couple of groups that got more of that. Then I had this one group where I took advantage of the VR to do lots of variability, kind of what you were talking about, Mark, and like lots of different pitch speeds, lots of different locations. And and part of it, what it allowed me to do is I adapted it. So as you got better, I gave you more variation and more. um, And so I did that. And then I measured people's performance in the league the year after. And, and then I, yeah, yeah, like you said, Lou, the big thing that took so long with the study is I just, then I just sat around and I waited to see, did these players get drafted into college? Did they get, um, did they play college baseball? They were high school at the time. Uh, did they play college baseball? They get drafted into major leagues. And then what I found was that variability condition did better in every regard, right? They did better wow. league statistics. More of them got drafted into pros um, so I think it was, it was fairly, you know, some transfer from, you know, it's hard somehow to, sometimes it's hard to demonstrate transfer of training. You know, this practice activity actually makes you better on the course, right? It is hard to show. And I, that's what I was trying to do with that. So, yeah, I really, the variability is the big one. Uh, I always say, if you don't buy any of this other stuff, then at least <laughs> try varying up your practice conditions. I think it has so many benefits and it's fun. It's like, like the ones you, Mark is talking about that sounds like super fun <laughs> trying yeah, it yeah. Is, you know different you know better than making a hundred of the same shot for sure. sure 
So like, yeah. can we talk about sonification? Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that is starting to be, so you can explain what it is to, to the listeners. And that's starting to be uh, uh, available in golf through different training aids. So I'd love to you know, talk about that and, and hear you expand on it. Yeah. So sonification is basically taking, um, so it's having something uh, that measures your movement. Either you could have a like an uh, accelerometer or something that measures the bend in your arm and basically taking the output of that and cr- using it to create a sound, right? So um, if I put something on the end of my club that measured acceleration, I could put that through an amplifier basically. So the faster I accelerated, the it could make the sound higher frequency or louder. Hmm. Um, so I basically giving you more information about your movement um, than you would normally get, right? So you, you suddenly I know when my club head speed is, club is I'm accelerating because I can hear it. Um, that's the basic idea of it. And, and I like it because it's kind of um, giving you a kind of information about your movement rather than f- focusing. And importantly, it's about the outcome of your movement rather than about what your body's doing, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And then specifically. Um, so, yeah, so that, and also it's a very, can be very cheap and as a pair composed to going a biomechanical lab that measures all your, you know, things like that. So, yeah, that's the basic idea of it. Yeah. So um, you gave an example of, I believe it was a speed skater in your book. Mm-hmm. That, that they were using sonification on to help them. They had a, a flaw in how they were skating. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on what they did and how they did it, a different sound would, would potentially go off. And you see training aids in golf that are doing similar things like that right now. You can put sensors on, on different parts of your body. It'll measure where you are. And you can do things like setting thresholds. And if you are inside or outside of a threshold, it, it might beep and t- let you know that you're, you know, you're in the right spot, you're not in the right spot. Um, talk about that, like, as maybe it relates to that study, and then the crossover into golf and, and how that potentially could work. Yeah, no, that that's a, interesting. The, the, the main myth, so that study, yeah, they were having trouble doing crossovers and skating, they were actually hitting their uh, tip of the skate in the ice and sometimes falling down. And they, they compared a bunch of conditions. But yeah, they compared though, the two main ones they compared was kind of what you're describing where you here's the correct way to do it. And if you go out of that, I'm going to either beep at you and try to keep you in, or they just kind of sonified it kind of continuously. So you you just learned what your, your foot was doing. And, and what they found was that the second one was better, right? So um, what I think for golf would be, think about it as a tool for be, making you aware of your club position, your club speed, rather than a corrective device that's going to beep when your elbow gets too bent, right? Because that's going back to the, the, one, the one correct technique yeah. idea. So yeah. I think the bulk of the research shows, right? Uh, another device I talk about, golf one in, in, the, in the book, is that the robo golf assistant, oh, yeah. the one that yeah, where been, you hold a club and the robot takes you through yeah. the correct movement. The research shows there's no real benefit to to actually just passively pulling or pushing you pull. It's about become learning about how your body makes the club move, right? That's yeah. written. This, the sonification is just giving you more information to learn that it's almost giving you another sense, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and so I think um, that's what I would try to focus using it. 
and I've been on that machine. I don't know if you've seen it or been on it, Lou. It's, you know, no, it programs very... in different players' swings. Yeah. But the biggest thing I took away from it when I went on it is I thought, well, the speed it's going at had then no, I could not relate it to a real movement in any way because there were no being there were no pulls and strains on my body in any of the same ways that that player would be the forces going through their body would be so different because mm -hmm. the speed they're doing at compared to this machine just like whacking me into positions I literally I, honestly I, I just thought this is just <laughs> I, I can't imagine this is just going to do nothing it's novel in the sense that it might show you where someone's position gets to for a bit of a novel fun but i just remember doing it thinking like i can see why people then this is back to my point about this is super hard to break down that machine in lots of people's heads makes a lot of sense like it mm. makes sense it it, it it it's an easier concept to sell or to to you know to sell into someone who wants to learn where the realities of what they might get out of it are maybe quite different i mean i was i, I went on it and i was amazed it was i just thought yeah well, yeah at it's this really... speed it's <laughs> just pointless like this yeah. is like it's a, it, yeah. I'm not it's an anything. interesting idea a kind of a alternative to that it's kind of the same thing but it's is actually much more effective thing to do if you wanted to do something like that is to try to imitate someone try to imitate jack nicholas's swing yourself like so that is way more effective than a robot passively guiding you through a, a great golfer swing because you have to learn okay what am i what is he doing you're picking up again yeah. it's it's all about like some the phrase learning to learn to move <laughs> right yeah. not just learning the one way learning to to adjust and adapt and understand how it relates. So, yeah, I think that that's interesting. I haven't tried one, Mark, either, but uh, either, they but are, I, they I've say. read all the research. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, as Mark, Mark's going to laugh here in a minute. So Mark is a, an instructor um, and I am just a regular weekend warrior golfer. I'm not an instructor. And uh, we all, I always like to turn this podcast into how can we help Lou? Help Lou. Like, that, that's really, that's <laughs> yeah. what the objective free, of this whole podcast is. Coach. Yeah. Free consulting. Yeah. Every like guest it. is about him. Like, yeah, I'm expecting his exactly. bank manager on next I, week. I, I, we're going to be talking hey. about remortgaging or something. Uh, the importance of it for your golf swing. Yeah. Nothing <laughs> wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm about to start making some big swing changes. And mm -hmm. You know, I have some quirkiness in my swing and, and it leads to some high variability in my performance when I'm on the golf course. Um, and I'm trying to trying to uh, get more consistent with my outcomes mm -hmm. and I, I need to make some big swing changes. And in the past, you've talked about mimicking like you just right mm -hmm. now you talk about mimicking Jack Nicklaus. And I go through and I will try to make a change and I will maybe try to take the club uh, and get my hands much lower at impact or very high at impact. I try to get them extremely low and I will hit a shot and think, you know, that is unbelievable. Like, I can't believe how perfect I did that. It's amazing. And then I'll look at it on video and it doesn't look, it, it looks like it always does. It doesn't look any different. So how can I use things from your world to help me feel some of those changes differently? And I know that's a hard, that's a, you know, we could talk about that for hours, which we might because we want, we're trying to help Lou here. <laughs> <laughs> so you're talking about being able to feel your tune into kind of your position and, and, Correct. and yeah. know whether you're, you're getting your, 
your what you want. Correct. And just for a little more context, um, mm-hmm. I was a decent golfer at some point. Um, I'm about a five index now, a little bit under that. I've hit a significant amount of golf shots. Um, most of the time, not really having any formal instruction, just kind of doing it on my own. And so I've really ingrained this technique that I've had. I'm not a new golfer. I've, I've hit tens, hundreds of thousands of shots like this. And so trying to make these changes, it, I'm going to be honest, it intimidates me. Um, I've tried briefly in the past and, 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 I, and I ask this and I jokingly say it's about me, but there's a lot of people out there like me asking and yeah. wondering the same thing. How do I make these changes? So like, how does your research potentially guide somebody like me that's trying to make some of these changes? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess on the one hand, it would argue, you know, being aware of your body position and, and whether your hands are low or high is not at that important, like being consciously aware of it because your body is really sorting that out in the self-organization. And I, you know, over the years, I've done lots of things where I've, I've seen, um, you know, hitters or something describe their swing path is down when it's clearly up. Like people yeah. often don't have a good, even really skilled, you really want more want to focus on the outcome rather than the, the like things like where your hands are and, and things like that. Um, so on the one hand, I would do that. On the other hand, though, I think there is something to be said for being doing activities that make you more, you know, you're talking about your kind of proprioceptive senses and you need the information you get from your muscles and tendons so I think, you know, they're doing kind of activities that emphasize that, whether it's using heavier implements, um, using, you know, so you can feel the force more, you know, doing some of the things we talk about where you're exaggerating the error. error. That would be kind of what I would um, focus on, I guess. You know, I would ask, you know, what, I guess, whenever I talk about like a technical change, I, I get, I try, try to really dig into why, like, what is the... What's the problem you're trying to correct? Um, is it, you know, something that you worry about an injury or is, is it because the ball's hooking or, you know what I mean? So um, to ask kind of why are we making that technical change in the first place? So yes. I don't know if that helped much. No, but, it, 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 yeah. it does. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. to give you the I mean, brief you why, and Mark should probably jump yeah. in here, but the, the way that I deliver the club leads to high variability in the face. Mm-hmm. And, and so sometimes uh, my, my hands are either, you know, they're catching up and my timing is on uh, and I hit it pretty well, or my hands get too fast and I, and I shut the face or my hands are extremely late and the face is wide open. So I can hit it all over the map. Like I have a mm-hmm. really huge dispersion and I'm trying to make that go away. But you brought up something that was interesting. This is something Marcus said, I get pretty steep with my swing. And you talked about using maybe a different implement, something maybe heavier and Mark has talked about that, like getting steep. And one of the things he said to me is if you were swinging a sledgehammer, you would never be able to get steep. Your, your body would just naturally kind of fall in to where the club would need to be. And so I wonder if like, I don't know if I would swing a 20 pound sledgehammer, but would something like that potentially be helpful to somebody like me just to help me feel a different movement? For sure. Yeah, that, yeah, that's exactly what we mean kind of by the constraints approach. We're, we're changing the task so what you're doing before doesn't work. And we're pushing yeah. you to something else, but not telling you exactly what that something else is, right? We're not yeah. extracting you what you're, what you're doing. So, yeah, that's exactly. Um, the other, you know, big me- um, 
methodology that a lot of people like to use and it's is kind of creating instead of a, a bodily focused instruction like keep your hands low or is using an analogy like an analogy that captures the movement so uh, the one i've heard in golf you know if you want to get a steeper swing path is think about casting a fishing line rather than yeah. focusing explicitly on the bottom so because one, we don't want to get too getting too bodily focused is da- is kind of a dangerous thing, I think, in the technique. And there's actually we're not really very good at correct like explicit taking explicit instructions. Move your hands a bit lower. We're not really good at that uh, kind of explicitly and consciously. We're good at like when I get have to <laughs> because there's a new task given to me. My body will figure it out um, in a new new way. But kind of the top down way doesn't work as effectively yeah and my experience with working with students when you work that way is a good percentage of it do figure it out but there's a there's another percentage you figure it out so wrong Mm -hmm. so they do what you were saying earlier they actually then exaggerate the fault but that still works as well because you you know that that person is not only maybe miles away from where they think it should be going they also might not have interpreted my instructions that clearly so i have to rethink of how my instructions are going mm-hmm. um so you, you absolutely do see when you do change the activity a percentage of them just like it does fall into place and some it completely goes to pot and you have to like run out of that dead that i like the amount of um and something for any golf coaches i watch i used to say this in my courses um like don't be afraid if you get it wrong golf coaches it, like golf coaching is based on so much anecdotal stuff and what they do is, is they think they should have the answer the student says how do i do this and they think they should have the answer i remember saying to my students constantly they would say i need to do this do i and i would say to them constantly, i've said this on the podcast all the time i don't know you haven't done it yet once you do it we'll know won't we like yeah. i think you need to do that so if we take someone like lou as an example Lou, I could show you lots of golfers who do what you do. Well, not lots, but I could show you a number of golfers who do what you do and can control the face and don't have variability. But my experience of seeing lots of golfers with your fault, the generalized pattern I see, let's put a random number on it, 80%, with your speed, they they, they have big variability like you have. So when I get a student like Lou, I instantly bung them in the 80% bracket because I've got probably a better chance of winning that game than going the 20% road. But I'm more prepared, more than prepared to run out of that dead end and go to 20% road because you can see when it's completely failing. Um, But I mean, just you holding two clubs, Lou. So we're talking about Lou's wrist angles for everybody listening. He gets Mm -hmm. his wrist angles. We've got a hack motion to Lou. So we will do a bit of content around what we're working on with Lou to see if it makes any difference. But if you imagine if you held on to two clubs, two irons where it felt really heavy, it would feel much more supportive for you to do that with them. It'll really for you to flatten lead wrist or certainly not to put so much hinge in that you put will feel weaker. Like those clubs are falling down that falling down feeling when that club gets above your, your head their feelings that students can use when they get the club in their hand. It's like, you know, that's the feeling you're going for. Do a few of those and try a shot. Um, so definitely having different weighted clubs and other tricks. At the end of the day, with a good, I always think with a good coach, they've got a bag of tricks, basically. Uh-huh. And yeah, they're not yeah. afraid to use any sure. of them. I used to yeah. say to students, if I say the word custard and you hit the ball well, 
I'm going to say the word <laughs> custard over and over again. So, I don't care uh, if it's right. I don't care if it's wrong. If I say custard, you hit the flag. I'm just oh. going to be your caddy and say custard before every shot. Well, Rob, I don't care what it takes. I, I know you. Um, we don't have too much more time with you. Um, there's another topic in your book that I found fascinating, and it was around injury prevention mm-hmm. and yeah. how your research and the research of others and how we are uh, approach skill acquisition can help with injury prevention. Um, can you, can you kind of walk us through that at a high level, like what you've learned and what others have learned? Yeah. Yeah. The traditional um, kind of view of injury is, you know, that it's caused by two problems. One, you're not doing it the right way, right? Your knees are over your toes or your, you don't, your elbows too straight and you're doing it too much right? You're, you're taking too many swings. And so we try to control it by giving you the correct technique or in restricting the amount you do it. The kind of third piece that's really, really beginning to show is that the factor is actually the variability part, the how consistently you do it, where consistency is actually a bad thing, right? Yeah, it's Doing it the straight same, almost. Yeah, yeah, the same way every time um, you know, is actually putting uh, the same forces in the same places. And, and there's, you know, there's evidence to show there's a, I talk about in the book, there's a study of runners who have runner's knee. They actually have lower variability in their stride. And they, and then there's a study where they train them actually to be more variable and the pain reduced. Right. So, and, and there's studies showing that, you know, um, kind of markers for ACL injury. When you train people in more variable conditions, those are better, right? Um, so yeah, uh, it seems to be, a, and it makes a lot of sense if you think about it, you know, trying to do the totally. one thing all the way, you know, the same time is actually going to increase the chance of injury, letting your body adapt to different forces and different positions that we, we tend to really baby, right? And I also talk about, um, you know, rehab, which um, I call it adaptation. I think, you know, I think it also has implications for that. How, when you do hurt yourself, how you get back, uh, how you adjust to your new situation. But yeah, I think adding variability, there's a growing body of evidence that promote, allowing people to do different swings and do all the things we're talking about is actually going to reduce the chance they get hurt. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I love that things like that are are being researched and looked at. Um, mm-hmm. I, I take a look at tools that we've had in the golf industry, like TrackMan and GC Quad, and, and that significantly changed what we understood about the swing. It, it changed how people learn how to, you know, optimize lo- things like launch conditions. Um, and uh, when Mark and I were talking about this, and, and when TrackMan came out uh, 15, 16 years ago, you know, there was a a, a number of coaches that, um, you know, were against it, you know, it, and mm-hmm. if the, you know, using that technology was a, a sign that you were not good at what you did. Um, mm-hmm. and now you wouldn't go see a coach that wasn't using a tool like that to really understand what's going on certain things. And, and I love that how we're continuing to learn and people like you, you know, you dedicated your professional career to skill acquisition and helping us learn more. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating. Um, and uh, I, I could keep you on here all day um, for the free advice. Yeah, right? that's that's great. My yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, and the other, I just want to close on one thing as well, which I think is interesting when you talk about variability. Is variability obviously is a word in golf that scares people because mm-hmm. most amateurs listening to this podcast, what they do is they struggle from too much variability, which is why they then go down the rabbit hole of trying to control 
everything. Mm -hmm. So they reduce the variability. But let's just be clear, the outcome is meant to be fixed within reason. We want the mm -hmm. ball to hit target. There is variability on the golf course, as you're all aware. And let's be honest, I wrote this down earlier. Golfers, anyone listening, be honest. How much, ask yourself this, how much are you practicing the variability of the questions you got asked even in your last round mm -hmm. like it you, you will find if people are honest they're going to the range this week and they're practicing a seven iron and a driver and they're trying to hit it the exact same way every time they're not yeah. focusing on the fact that they weren't able to hit a punch low into a wind or they weren't able to get any of their approach shots to the pin they all came up short like they're not reacting to that variability or mm -hmm. that they chose the wrong club or that they couldn't judge uphill and downhill shots and so on and so forth for so sure yeah. even though you struggle with variability golfers listen i understand that but you are struggling with variability and you're going to be confronted with variability so you do need to have weapons to help you deal with the variability of golf because we're always going to bring our elements of variability to it aren't they because it's just as soon as you use the word variability i know what people do like alarm golfers <laughs> yeah alarm bells ring oh but i'm not consistent anyway so i need to get <laughs> yeah no say. no yeah that's a great point i think that's a key key message you need variability um not all of it is good right there are, you yeah. know it's not recognizing yeah the inconsistency you show up with when they come to you and they first learning golf yeah. you know it's not all good you got to get rid of some of that but you're basically you're kind of restructuring it rather than reducing it all and being a robot that can produce the exact same movements every time. Uh, that's yeah, the bulk of that. That's not how we become skillful at all. It's by harnessing this variability and, and enhancing the good part of it is, is yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, I do want to, um, I'm going to plug your book for you. So okay. Dr. Yeah, Rob yeah, Gray, yeah. how we learned to <laughs> Where move. Where do we get it? Yeah. How, uh, the revolution in the way we coach and practice sports skills. So I've read through this twice now and it, I usually don't do that. Um, it is a phenomenal book. Um, I've read a little bit on this topic before, and this was great in that it, um, I, I, you don't need a background. You don't need to be a professor at Arizona state to understand the material that's in here. It's applicable to anyone. Uh, I recommend it for golfers and coaches. So it's a, it's a great book and I got it on Amazon. I don't know if there's anywhere else you would want to get it from Rob uh, or you'd recommend right now. It's only on Amazon. Okay. And they yeah, give you perfect. a little uh, bonus if you keep it on there for, for a little while, but eventually there'll be other places, but yeah, Amazon's right now. And yeah, I and I, and I have listened to some of your podcasts, uh, Perception and Action Podcasts. It, it was great. Um, and uh, so I'm going to dive into a little bit more of the, the episodes on there. And, uh, you know, after we hang up here, I would love to, to, I think you mentioned a couple of golf studies that you've, uh, you referenced in our conversation. I'd love to just maybe get some of those links um, yeah, and, and uh, see if I can learn a little bit more from those as well. For yeah, sure, guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you, you very Rob, much. As always, I appreciate the kind brilliant. words. Yeah, no problem. It's been fun and educational, and um, a lot to learn. I think, as Lou said, there's so much still to learn in this field, certainly in the golf world. Um, and hopefully, today's pod has got people thinking a little bit differently about how they should organise themselves, stroke their practice. Thanks for listening, everybody. As always, leave those stars down below. Any reviews, let us know how we're doing. Um, if you want to see any particular guests on a show, let us know. Hit us up on our social channels. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you in the next uh, podcast.